I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here as well. And uh, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we only understand in the smallest degree how deeply you love us. We only understand to the smallest degree how deeply we need your word, how deeply we need to worship you with all of our being. And so, Father, we ask again, uh, trusting that you welcome our requests, trusting that you welcome us, um, that you would continue to be the one who speaks to us, you would help us to hear your word, not just so that we might know more, but that we might be changed, that we might love you more and love others more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we grow in love for one another? 
That's the question we've been asking over the last few weeks. The question we'll be kind of continuing to think through up through November. How do we grow in love for each other? We know that love is important. You know, Scripture says it's the most excellent way. And if we're honest with each other, we know that we have a lot of room to grow in when it comes to loving. So how how do we grow in love? Scripture says, pursue love. We are commanded to try to grow in love. So how do we do that? I wonder if we ask this question to, you know, to different experts in our world around us, how they'd answer it, like whether it's the therapist or sociologist, what do I do if I want to grow in love? I wonder how people would answer. Now, maybe they would say we need to, to focus on empathy, try to understand other people's perspective, or, or maybe it would be more of habits. Let's have practices where we're doing things that are loving. This is good advice, but it's not where Scripture really takes us to fundamentally answer that question. What Scripture says is that if you want to grow and love one for another, it needs to begin in your relationship with God. That you cannot truly be right with each other until you are right with God, and the way to grow in love for each other is in growing in our relationship with the Father. And last week, we thought about that in terms of how it relates to fear. Fear, we, we said, and this is not a, a new observation, but fear is, is the love killer. It's like the weeds that choke out our love. The more afraid we are, the less easy we have it with fear, and the, I mean, with, with love. And the way for us to move from fear to love, Scripture says, is by growing in our awareness of just how deeply we are loved by God. That, that the more we can understand that if we are in Christ, we are adopted that the Father says to us, I love you, and the Spirit says back through us, yes, you are my Father. The more that we can become assured of that, the more that we can move away from fear to be able to love. This is how we grow in love. That's the first piece, the first step in the answer Scripture gives us to how do you grow in love. And, and the second piece is what I want us to consider this morning, and, it, and it's I think what we find in the very opening verse of the passage that Debbie just read, Romans 12, verse 1, might be familiar to many of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, the mercies of God, this is exactly what we've just been talking about. The mercies of God is what Romans has spoken of for the last 11 chapters of the love of God, of how though we have sinned in Christ, we are forgiven, and now we are adopted by God the Father, That's what he's talking about. By the mercies of God, now that you have believed this, now that you have trusted this, here's how you respond. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Humanity, each of us, we were... We were designed in such a way that we we need to give ourselves away. We're we're not going to feel complete. We're not going to feel whole. We're not going to find ourselves until we give ourselves. And, And there's different choices that people have of how we do that. Sometimes people want to give themselves to another person. Or sometimes we might give ourselves to a project or or to success. But scripture says what we fundamentally need to give ourselves is to God. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, when you understand this, here's how you respond, saying, God, I I have come to realize that you love me, and I've come to actually trust that. And so because of that, all that I am 
and all that I have, I give to you. Do with me whatever you want to do. Lead me wherever you want to go. That's, that's what this is saying when it's saying offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It is a call to surrender, to believe in the mercies of God, and to surrender ourselves to him. Have you, have you done that? Let me just stop for a second. Is that something that you can say, yes, I, I know what he's talking about. Have you ever, in some way, not necessarily in these words, but in some way responded to an awareness of what God has done and say, God, I'm yours. Whatever you tell me to do doesn't matter. I'll do it. Because your love is so great, I surrender myself to you. I trust myself to you. That is fundamentally what the Christian faith is. That's what Romans 12 is saying. It's saying, now that you have seen the mercy of God, if you understand it, if you've come to trust in it, here is the right response to offer yourself, all that you are, all that you have to God, saying, this is yours, I will obey. Now, I I bring that up here because this is a fundamental piece of how we grow in love. What Romans 12 is outlining in this first verse is not just what it means to be a Christian, but what it means to grow in love. And and here's where I'm going to take us today, and here's where I think Scripture takes us. For you to grow in love for others, you must give yourself in love to God first. If you want to give yourself to others, you must give yourself to God first. If you want to love more, others more, you must love God first. Because anything else is a disordered love. And disordered love ultimately is a dysfunctional love. For you to love others well, you must love God first. Because otherwise, it's a disordered love. And a disordered love is ultimately a dysfunctional love. And what I want to do is just kind of help you to see how we see this in Scripture and then think through kind of why this is, this is really practical and why we actually see it in our experience. So first, how do, how do we see that in, in this passage and actually throughout the Bible? Well, let's just jump forward a little bit to the second half of this passage that we, we just heard read, where we were told, let love be genuine. And let me just tell you from the outset, this paragraph right here in the next one This is the description of the love that we're pursuing. Like when we're saying, how do we grow in love? What Paul has here is exactly what we're talking about. Let love be genuine, jumping up, uh, jumping to verse 10. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Paul is speaking here of a genuine and warm and real love. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's it's a humble love where it, it rejoices in the other person being admired. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This isn't just a superficial niceness. This is a love he's describing that is sacrificial, that involves giving and welcoming people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is not an easy love. This is a love that's even towards people who are cruel. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is not a love that that stays removed from those, but is, is intimately connected so that their joys are your joys and their sorrows are your sorrows. Do you see, this, this kind of like 
machine gun, instruction after instruction after instruction. It's, it's painting a picture of, of what love really looks like. This is the love that you and I want. This is the bullseye when we're saying, how do we grow in love? This is what we're talking about. So the question is, how? So Paul is saying, this is what you need to do. This is the love that you should aspire to. How do we get there? Well, as so often in Scripture, for us to answer the questions that we find in the passage, we need to kind of look at the context. And if we just back up to the previous paragraph, we begin to answer that question. Paul is saying the way to having a right love is, is through viewing yourself rightly. So, verse 3, it says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this word think here, it's not like sometimes when we're like pondering hard, some sort of um, difficult puzzle in our head. That's not what thinking is here. Thinking here is more, could be translated mindset or perspective, the way that you, you kind of view the world in any given moment. And he's saying, as, as you view the world, be careful about how you view yourself in it. Have, have a mindset where you see yourself truly. I mean, we, we know how actually it is, if we're honest, that so often without, it's not even a conscious thought, it's just the presupposition, it's, it's the, the lens we view the world through, we see ourselves as being really significant. It, it's most important to us that, that our desires are met, that people are paying attention to us. We have a tendency to view the world with us at the center. We view ourselves more highly than we ought. And Paul says you need to have a different mindset. Where, where you don't do that. Instead, he says, think with sober judgment about yourself. Think, think honestly. See yourself realistically. And how? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Another way of describing that is view yourself through the gospel. Don't, don't view yourself as the center of the world, but have a mindset that's shaped by the gospel. So what does that mean? Well, verses 4 and 5 unpack how we should, as we're going in day in and day out, view ourselves. And it starts with a metaphor or an analogy. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. I mean, we understand this illustration, right? Like, my finger is really important to me, and if somehow it were removed, I would miss it. It has a very important function, but yet also, if it were removed, it would miss me. Like, it would not really be able to do a whole lot on its own, right? But each member of the body has its identity, has its function in relationship to the whole. That's, that's the analogy that we have here. So he says, in that way, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And that's something. This is saying that when you placed your faith in Christ, not only were you joined to him, and we are, we are in Christ if we've placed faith in him, but you are joined to the rest of his church, his body, in such a way that you're actually not truly your own anymore. Not only do you belong to Christ, but in some sense you now belong to each other. Like a finger belongs to the body. So I belong to you. I, my function is, is I, I do not have identity on my own. It's as part of this community. Look around for just a moment. Look, like you, you can see people 
You belong to the people around you in some way, and, and they in some way belong to you. That, that's what this is saying. It's, it's striking, isn't it? We're, we're in a, a time where we're so hyper-individualistic, and yet what Scripture is saying, no, no, when you... When you became a Christian, you were bonded to a community. This is what's talking about when he's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We want to think of ourselves on our own as having our own decisions that don't affect anyone else. And Paul's saying, that is the wrong mindset. You need to view yourself as, as a finger or, or an elbow or some part of a body where in some real way you belong to that body and that body belongs to you so that anything you do is going to affect the rest of the body and anything anyone else in the body is going to affect you. There, there is a deep solidarity that we are meant to experience as Christians. That we're all on the same team. Except that's, that doesn't go deep enough. We're, we're the same family. We're brothers and sisters. Except, except that doesn't even go deep enough, does it? Because we're, we're members of a body so that when one part of us hurts, all of us hurts. And when one part of us is not working, all of us feel it. Now, do you see how this mindset of seeing yourself not as this solo, individualistic follower of Christ, but as someone who belongs to a body, do you see how that mindset will then change the way we love. If this is how we view ourselves, then it makes sense that we will rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn, because we're fundamentally connected to them. It makes sense why we would love one another with, with brotherly affection, because we care deeply. It, would, it makes sense for why, why we would welcome people in hospitality, because we belong to each other. Do you see, to love well, we need to think of ourselves well. But there's another piece to this logic. In fact, it's so important that, that if we didn't look at it, I actually think we, we could have a deep danger of misunderstanding the whole thing. I'll explain what that danger is in just a moment. But what we need to understand is that for us to love well and for us to think of ourselves well, we first need to love God well. Look, look again at verse 3. Do you notice that three-letter word that it begins with? For. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Whenever there's a for, I mean, we understand kind of what it means. It's saying, what I'm saying now is connected to what I've just said. And really, you can't fully understand what I'm about to say unless you know what I've just said. And what is it that Paul has just said? Well, we've already talked about it in verse 1. Therefore, I, I, I urge you, through the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So here's what's going on. Verse 1 is, is the thesis statement. Verse 1 is the topic. Verse 1 is the, the center. He has just spent 11 chapters talking about how loving God is and what God has done. And Paul says, here's the response. The response is to offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, now let me tell you what that looks like. When you have done this, when you have offered yourself as a living sacrifice, then you will start thinking of yourself differently as, as someone who belongs to the body. Then you will start loving others rightly. But what is important to understand as we look at this passage together, as we understand the logic, is that it all starts with worshiping God. 
Paul cannot speak about how we love each other until he has first spoken of how we love God. It is only as we offer ourselves to God that we are then freed to love each other the way that we are meant to. That's fundamental to this passage. Because you cannot love others well until you love God first. Anything else is a disordered love, and a disordered love is dysfunctional. And it's not just Romans that we see this. As we take a step back, we see this again and again in Scripture. Last week, you might remember we talked about Jesus being asked, what is the great command? And we noticed that Jesus says the heart of what we are called to do is love. But it's not just any love that he speaks of. It's an ordered love. What does he say? The first commandment is to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see there's an order? Love God with all of your being. And as you do that, then you are freed, secondarily, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he is clearly, intentionally saying something to shock people. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone does not hate his family, he cannot follow me. Now that, that sounds a little odd and disturbing to us, it would have sounded incredibly disturbing to them because in that day and age, family was everything. Your identity and everything was about family. And, and Scripture again and again speaks of the importance of loving family. In some ways, our greatest human responsibility of love is to love our family. And yet Jesus here says you have to hate them. Now what is he saying? He's not literally saying we should hate our family. The rest of Scripture makes that clear. He's speaking about the order of the way that we love. That our, our love for God, our love for Christ, should be so great, so central, that in comparison, even our love for family looks like hatred in comparison. It's a call for an ordered love. That our love for God must be central. In 2 Corinthians... Um, Paul is kind of glowingly speaking of the Macedonian church because of the way that they were generous to people in need. But here's what he said. He said, and they, and they gave well. They gave first to God and then to those in need. Do you hear that? First to God. In other words, I think what he is saying is that when the Macedonians heard about the need of the people in Jerusalem and how they were poor, the first thing they did was not pull out their wallets. The first thing they did was pray. And they said, God, everything we have is yours. We love you. Please show us. How should we do this? And as they did that, then in response, they gave generously to others. There's an order. They loved God above all else, giving themselves to God. And then as a result of that, they gave themselves to others. Because that is the order to our love. And a disordered love is dysfunctional. And, the, and that's where I want to go next. That's, so the Bible says this. And the reason it's so important is because we, it's not just that we if, we, if we order our loves wrongly, that's wrong and unpleasing to God. It, it is. I mean, we do need to love God with all of our being. It's that love actually doesn't work unless we love in the right order. 
that if we get our love out of whack, it's going to be deformed. There's going to be problems with it. It will be, as I said, dysfunctional. So think for a moment about what we just were looking at. We talked about this idea of how you and I, in a real way, belong to each other. Let me ask you, when we reflected on that idea, when you were hearing that, in any way, did it make you feel a bit nervous or uncomfortable? It would be appropriate, I think, if you did, because the reality is we know how groups do have the ability sometimes to hurt people. We know of how easy it can be if you're seeking to care for a group of people and if they have unrealistic demands, how you can burn yourself out. We know of times where communities of people can, can be abusive or unkind or just simply expecting things unrealistically. And, and the question that we ask is, if I belong to a community, how can I keep myself from being destroyed by the community? And it's not just any community, even Christian communities. We've seen how Christian communities can hurt people. So how do we take this idea of us belonging to each other without us getting destroyed by each other? And you, you know, there are books that talk about this. Sometimes you hear about, about the idea of setting boundaries, and I think that can be helpful, but, but sometimes that almost implies that, that love should always have limits. But I don't actually think that's what Scripture's answer is. Scripture's answer is the, re the reason you're not going to get devoured by a community is because you haven't given yourself first to the community. You've given yourself first to Christ. And while a community can be unforgiving, can be overly demanding, can be abusive, Christ never is. And so there will be times that, that even as the community that you belong to asks things of you as you worship God and you seek him first, he will say, no, you don't need to do that. I'm not calling you to do that. Do you see how giving ourselves to God first is what, is what protects us, is what allows our love to be done freely and not in a way that's dysfunctional? You know, another way that this can take place is one of the dangers of churches, and I'd say our church fits in this category, where, where relationships are really important, where there's an intentionality about warmth, which is great. But one of the dangers sometimes can be that community becomes primary. And Jesus becomes secondary. Because we really want to be loving each other well. We want to be affectionate. We want to be a place that people feel welcomed and at home. But if we're not careful, that can become so much our focus that Jesus kind of just recedes to the background. And our love becomes disordered. And you know when that happens, things start, start going wrong. Like, what do you think happens if someone enters a community that's just simply unpleasant and always seems to kind of keep people at arm's length and, and makes things feel unhappy and makes the community just kind of feel a little bit less enjoyable for each other. If community is everything, if that's the thing that matters more than anything else, then that person is not going to have a place. They will eventually be removed. But if, if following Christ is central, then because of our obedience to him, then we will welcome the person who otherwise would not be welcomed. You know, one of the dangers of pastors, of being a pastor, um, is it can be a really easy thing to substitute loving other people for loving God. 
I mean, it's, it's an easy mistake to make if you think about it. I'm going to love the church. I know I'm called to love the church, but sometime over time, loving the church becomes the center rather than what it means to love God well. Because loving church is more tangible, and, and if you give yourself to it, you're, you're going to get kind of that, that experience of people loving you back and, and thanking you and whatnot. But if that is what becomes your center, it will devour you. The, the only way to love each other well in a biblical way, this is why Romans 12 works the way it does, is as we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, and as that happens, as we belong to him, he frees us up to love others in a healthy way, rather than a way that we get destroyed by and we destroy others by. And it's not just even in our church relationships. It's, it's family, too. There's a reason that Jesus intentionally shocks people by saying, you have to, in comparison to your love for me, hate your family. You know, sometimes when families are having struggles, the simplistic thing is to say they just don't love each other enough, and sometimes that's not it. Sometimes the thing is that they actually love each other in a disordered way. So if, if you have a child born to you, and, and you love that child. That is godly. That is good. But there is a way that it can become, that that child becomes your everything. And suddenly now, things have become disordered so that your identity is caught up with your child and your child's happiness. And over time, your child will feel the burden of that. Maybe because you so care about their happiness, you will have an overly controlling way of handling them, and they'll feel that. Or maybe they'll just know that if they're not happy, you will be miserable, and they feel so deeply the pressure of having to be happy for your sake. And eventually, the pressure of that relationship will crack, because it was never meant to carry that kind of weight, because you were meant to love God first, to give yourself to God, to seek your identity in Him, and then, as one who belongs to him, to love your child freely in a secondary way. It's true for, for marriage relationships, for, for dating relationships. One of the things that oftentimes people will discover, this certainly was my experience in high school and college, is that a relationship can't be healthy until you realize that. For me, I... I went through both, you know, like I think I've described, you know, my high school life was like a John Hughes film. If you've ever seen Johnny Hughes films where there's always like that, that well-meaning guy who is always on the sideline admiring someone and you always hope that sometime you're going to be the person who gets that girl and you're happily ever after. That was my high school dream. I, I saw myself as that really nice, good-meaning guy and someday I'd get the girl. And I didn't realize at the time, but I had made an idol. I had loved the idea of a relationship above anything else. And when I started having relationships, I put them above anything else, and it never worked. It was dysfunctional, because it was never meant to be that. Marriage is never meant to be that. I don't care what Jerry Maguire says, you don't get completed by your spouse. You love God first. And as you love God first, then you are freed to love in a healthy way others. I mean, that works in, in, in charity, too. We talked about this in 2 Corinthians. When the Macedonian church gave, it says they gave themselves first to God. If we are consumed by trying to take care of the needs of the poor, and that becomes our everything, it will eat us alive, and we will be resentful and proud in a way that we won't be if we love God. And we say, God, tell me what to do, and I will do it. Do you see that the simple point that we keep seeing here? If you want to grow 
in love. And to, to love well, maybe counterintuitively, the truth is that it needs to begin with you loving God first. With you giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice. The order in Scripture is to believe in view of God's mercies, to believe, to, to take hold of the reality that I am loved by God. To believe that so that we are freed from fear and then believing this to surrender. God, all that I am and all that I have is yours. This, this is the pathway to us growing in love for others. We, we believe and we surrender, and as we do that, we begin to obey. We obey as God says, see those who are in need, go there and love them. We obey as, as God says, in this relationship that's hard, keep at it, keep loving, because that is what I'm calling you to do. We obey as God says, yes, you have been hurt, but I'm calling you to forgive and to continue loving. As we surrender, we obey, and as we obey, we begin to experience the love for others. Believe and surrender and obey, and you will love. Now, that's not a romantic prescription, right? Like, but it's real. Because that's actually the way the Holy Spirit works. The very heart, the power of love is found in the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit gives us the ability to obey. The, the Spirit moves us to, to, to worship God. The Spirit, as we are taking step in, in faith of obedience, the Spirit starts giving us the ability to do that, and He gives us the love. This is when the Bible says, keep in step with the Spirit. It's follow the Spirit's way of working. Believe, surrender, obey, and you will love. That's what we're going to be thinking of over the next few weeks. That's kind of the trajectory that Scripture is putting us on. But, but as we come to a close, I'd like us to even just now take a moment to, to respond in prayer. Maybe God has been, as he has for me these last few days, been causing you to think, have I lost sight of the reality that God is my all? Have I lost sight of the fact that he is the one I love above all else and he is the one that I serve? If that's true of you, I invite you to spend some time in, in confession and prayer, and, and then I'll lead, you, lead us in prayer in just a little time. So would you please pray silently with me first. Father, I confess, uh, we confess, 
that we do not love you as we should. That the good things you have given us, the good relationships you have given us, have often become primary and you have moved to the background. That often we have given ourselves not to you, but to other things. Lord, this is not only wrong, but it is sad because you deserve our love, and it is foolish because we will never be right until we love you the way we should. And so, Father, in our grief, we ask for your forgiveness. Hopeful, because we know that we are in Christ and that you are a God who forgives. And as those who know that in Christ we are forgiven, we ask that your spirit would move us towards you, that more and more you would rightly order our love, that we might learn to love you with all of our being, to give ourselves over completely to you, and that in that we might experience what it looks like to truly grow in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are the words, the good news of the gospel from an earlier passage from Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Thanks be to God.